What are the real objectives behind the Trump administration's trade war with China? Will America's dominant role in the international financial system compensate for China's economic advantages in an extended economic war? Why is Trump and the populist right better able to appeal to the working class than the left? How is the U.S. able to continue driving global capitalism even while in a state of decline? Is there any mechanism by which the public can meaningfully resist the destructive pro-corporate policies embodied by Trump? On this week's Global Research News Hour radio program, we take a look at some of the factors shaping American economic policy, its influence on the world stage, and the ability of the American public and rival powers to counter U.S. hegemony. Our first guest, Dr. Jack Rasmus, will take us through an analysis of the current U.S.-China trade war. In the second half hour, York University professor Leo Panich shares his insights into how the U.S. prevails as an economic power and how today's freedom struggles can be won. On this week's program, Trumponomics, America First, the U.S.-China trade war, and the future of global capitalism. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of May 31st, 2019. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe Gakin, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the historical territory of the Nahiowak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. The Russian foreign ministry denounced the May 28th raids as provocation and said that Pristina's main aim is, quote, to intimidate and force out the non-Albanian population and forcibly establish control of the area, unquote. The Russian side also pointed out that, quote, unquote, perennial indulgence given by the EU and the U.S. is instigating Pristina's aggressive actions. The actions of the NATO-backed Kosovo administration and its forces consistently undermine de-escalation efforts and lead to the growth of tensions in the Balkans. For example, in December 2018, Kosovo's parliament overwhelmingly approved a decision to turn the Kosovo security force into fully-fledged armed forces. This decision was a flagrant violation of UN Security Council Resolution 1244, which allows only for multinational contingents under international control to be present on this territory. That comes from the article under the headline video, Kosovo Police Raids in Serb-Majority Areas Spark New Round of Tensions in the Balkans, posted May 30th, originally published at South Front. If you were shocked by Edward Snowden's revelations about how NSA agents have used surveillance to spy on Americans' phone calls, emails, and text messages, can you imagine what unscrupulous government agents could do with access to your internet-connected car, home, and medications? All of those internet-connected gadgets we just have to have, Forbes refers to them as data pipelines to our intimate bodily processes, 
the smartwatches that can monitor our blood pressure, and the smartphones that let us pay for purchases with our fingerprints and iris scans are setting us up for a brave new world where there is nowhere to run and nowhere to hide. Imagine what a SWAT team could do with the ability to access, monitor, and control your internet-connected home, locking you in, turning off the lights, activating alarms, etc. Thus far, the public response to concerns about government surveillance has amounted to a collective shrug. After all, who cares if the government can track your whereabouts on your GPS-enabled device so long as it helps you find the fastest route from point A to point B? That comes from the article Techno-Tyranny, The Iron-Fisted Authoritarianism of the Surveillance State by John W. Whitehead, posted May 30th, originally published on the Rutherford Institute. Switzerland has become the epicenter of neoliberalism over the past 30 years or so, and is ideal for the -the behind-the-scene discussions and agreements, visions of new world order strategies. The first item in this year's Bilderberg meeting's agenda is a stable strategic order, a euphemism for one world order or new world order. Other official agenda items include the future of capitalism, Russia, China, weaponizing social media, Brexit, what's next for Europe, ethics of artificial intelligence, and of course, not to be missed in conferences of such importance, climate change. Imagine with such a benign agenda what will take place behind closed doors. One of the permanent agenda items which is close to Rockefeller's heart, the current thriving force behind the Bilderbergers, and is being propagated by his disciple, Henry Kissinger, is the reduction of world population, so that the few on top may live better and longer with the world's rapidly diminishing resources. That comes from the article, The Bilderbergers in Switzerland, by Peter Koenig, posted May 30th. The case against Syria at the ICC is the weaponization of international justice to pressurize a militarily undefeated nation into submitting to and complying with U.S. geopolitical doctrine. This process will benefit those within the interventionist alliance whose goal is regime change in Syria. It will not benefit the more rational political players who do, perhaps, accept that working with President Assad is the only way to re-establish bilateral economic relations with Syria. As always, this is all about propaganda and the mobilization of bias and not about justice. It is a colossal act of misdirection. Those countries and individuals who have armed, financed, and promoted the terrorist extremism and savagery that has ravaged Syria and her people for eight years should be in the dock. That comes from the article, Latest Attempt to Prosecute President Assad at ICC, Criminalization of International Justice, by Vanessa Bealey, posted May 30th, originally published on 21st Century Wire. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Trade talks have broken down between the United States and China. 
The Trump administration's story is that China is engaged in unfair trade practices which put straight-shooting U.S. companies at a disadvantage. To force them into compliance, they've been imposing tariffs on Chinese exports to the U.S. China has retaliated with tariffs of their own. To get a better understanding of the fundamentals behind the U.S.-China trade war and where they may lead, we reached out to Dr. Jack Rasmus. Dr. Rasmus holds a Ph.D. in political economy. He teaches economics and politics at St. Mary's College in California and is the host of the weekly radio show, Alternative Visions, on the Progressive Radio Network. He's authored several fictional and non-fictional works, including his recent book, Central Bankers at the End of Their Ropes, Monetary Policy in the Coming Depression. Dr. Rasmus started our conversation by correcting impressions depicting the Chinese and not Trump's team as principally to blame for the failed negotiations. Well, you know, uh, one of the major things that they did the week before, it didn't come through in the uh, American press very, very clearly, if at all. Uh, but um, even before the Chinese were coming over, uh, about a week to two weeks before, um, the uh, U.S. Uh, side threw up uh, some demands uh, that you can only interpret as uh, an attempt to uh, scuttle the negotiations. Uh, and one of the big demands, of course, was uh, uh, China would not only have to uh, cease and desist requiring uh, U.S. companies in China to share technology, uh, but that uh, China would have to share its technology with the U.S. after any agreement, notwithstanding. Uh, you know, and what we're talking about are technologies that are next generation technologies and their military implications to them. Uh, these are, of course, uh, artificial intelligence, 5G wireless and um, uh, cybersecurity. So the U.S. is kind of saying, uh, you know, you've got to give us your technology, <laughs> uh, mm. which is really a non a non starter here, pretty much. Uh, plus, uh, Trump even and others and his team were saying, uh, well, you know, even if we get an agreement, we're going to keep some of these tariffs anyway. Uh, when the understanding was, okay, if you had an agreement, then both sides are going to step down on all their tariffs. And the U.S. had already uh, implemented uh, $250 billion and uh, had just raised the tariffs uh, rates on $200 billion from 10% to 25% just before the Chinese came over. So that was kind of a, a slap in the face, too. Uh, to any of the negotiators. Uh, we're going to keep these tariffs no matter what. And then Trump said, uh, by the way, you know, we're going to raise it on uh, the remaining uh, $300 billion in tariffs in goods trade between uh, China and the U.S. So in other words, we're going to we're going to slap tariffs on uh, over $500 billion a year and raise them on some we already have. And we're going to keep them after the negotiations. And you're going to have to share your technologies. And oh, by the way, uh, you know, uh, Trump says as well, or his team pretty much says as well, that uh, you, China, you got to do something about subsidizing your state-owned enterprises, you know. Uh, if we're going to get 51% ownership of our operations in China, which is a big concession China already made months ago, uh, then, uh, you know, well, we want a more level playing field in China. you got to stop subsidizing your, your state-owned enterprises. Well, you know... The U.S. subsidizes its its companies, you know, big time. There's multi-trillion-dollar tax cut uh, for multinational corporations, two trillion dollars, I estimate, over a decade, is a big subsidy. We subsidize, U.S. subsidizes through uh, the tax system. It subsidizes through export-import bank. Uh, those are direct subsidies to exporters. Uh, 
you know, so uh, big subsidies. For example, Amazon uh, made, uh, I don't know, several billion dollars last year, paid no taxes. Uh, the same with Duke Energy and uh, Chevron and, uh, you know, IBM and a host of other big companies. We subsidize through the tax system. China doesn't have the same tax system. It doesn't make much sense to tax your state-owned enterprises. You're like, it's like taxing yourself. So China subsidizes uh, through price uh, instead of uh, through tax. Well, the U.S. says, uh, you got to stop this, you know. After all, you, you, we want free market and so forth. Well, that's nonsense. Uh, the U.S. doesn't believe in free markets. It uh, supports its big companies a big time. So all these combinations and who knows what other threats uh, were, were laid out by the U.S. negotiators and Trump himself in uh, the two weeks prior and uh, to, to negotiations uh, commencing and uh, intensified uh, in the week before. But you didn't hear anything of that. You see, you hear this official spin that all oh, the Chinese reneged and backtracked on uh, the agreements. Well, the U.S. was backtracking uh, right and left. And what do you expect the Chinese to do? Uh, just to say, okay, we're going to come and make concessions anyway, uh, even though you're taking stuff off the table. What this said to me is that uh, the neocons who are running U.S. foreign policy, including trade policy now, uh, really don't want a deal with China. What the neocons want with China is capitulation on the technology issue, because the other major issues have already been agreed to a long time ago, and that is China agreeing to buy a trillion dollars more U.S. goods, and that would reduce the trade deficit, uh, China agreeing to allow uh, U.S. companies to have 51% or more ownership of their operations in China. Uh, those were the big issues. <clears throat> and that's why way back in May 2018, a year ago, when uh, uh, Steve Mnuchin was heading the negotiations, not the neocons, Steve Mnuchin's Treasury Secretary, uh, he went over there and he got these concessions on the trade deficit and um, on, on ownership. And uh, he came back and he said, oh, we got a great deal. And they did. Uh, but the neocons intervened last uh, uh, May and June. I'm talking about 2018 and uh, took over once again uh, the control of uh, the negotiating team. Uh, you know, Lighthizer is, is a neocon. Uh, so is uh, Peter Navarro and, of course, John Bolton. All this happened last summer when we had this big shift and the neocons uh, swept into the uh, uh, Trump administration in the vacuum as a uh, all the mainstream uh, Republicans, big business Republicans, began bailing out of the Trump administration. And we see the neocon consequences here, not only in uh, scuttling the trade negotiation, uh, but of course, uh, the buildup uh, uh, to overthrow uh, the, the Maduro government in Venezuela and planning invasion and so forth, which is still going on, uh, and scuttling uh, any deal with North Korea. It was very embarrassing for North Korea. Trump goes over there and he said, well, we got nothing to agree on. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and the North Koreans said, uh, uh, you know, they sat down and, and they made a proposal to say, uh, OK, um, uh, you withdraw five sanctions and uh, uh, we will uh, shut down five locations where, you know, we have missile building and so forth. And uh, the answer of the neocons, uh, Bolton running that show, was, uh, no, no, uh, you got to... Um, uh, shut down all your missiles, all your nuclear deal, then we will negotiate with you over the sanctions. Well, that's a 
that's a no deal, you see. That That's a way of scuttling negotiations. And then, of course, they blame it on the other side. And the U.S. media uh, goes goes along with the whole story. So this isn't really about negotiations at all. It's just a kind of a show that uh, allows them to either force the other side to capitulate or uh, they will, as I understand your analysis, have a, a justification for what you seem to believe is a uh, an inevitable uh, recession coming up to, toward the end of the year? Yeah, you know, uh, Trump actually believes in his naive economic understanding uh, that uh, these tariffs uh, generate a lot of tariff revenue for the government, uh, and they have to date with China uh, tens of billions, maybe a hundred billion in revenue, and he thinks uh, that's a great thing. Uh, and of course, uh, when when you got the, the the U.S. deficit at a trillion dollars a year and the debt rising similarly, and uh, for as far as the eye can see, a trillion dollar plus deficits, right? Uh, what you what you can say is that uh, you know you've reduced the uh, the deficit by uh, having this uh, trade trade revenue come in, uh, and if you look at the U.S. economy first quarter, that uh, a growth re- uh, growth number uh, was almost only all due to uh, trade trade measures, uh, inventory buildup uh, by U.S. businesses, anticipation of the trade uh, trade situation deteriorating, and um, Export imports, net exports rising. Two thirds of all the uh, the first quarter GDP of the U.S. was was due to net exports and uh, due to um, uh, the inventory buildup. Well, that's all trade related, both of them. You see, uh, so they probably think that uh, oh, they can offset the slowing U.S. economy at least in the numbers uh, by uh, continuing uh, pulling in more more tariffs, uh, tra- tariff revenue from, from a trade war. But I think even more so than this, uh, I think the neocons uh, have convinced uh, Trump that, uh, hey, look, you know, if the trade breaks down, it's only going to be a year and we can use the, the, the breakdown of the trade. We can blame the Chinese for the slowing U.S. economy and we can really uh, jumpstart once again this economic nationalism before the 2020 election. In the meantime, we can give all these subsidies to the farmers, you know, of which they've given, what, $28 billion already, probably have to give another $30-plus billion next year. Uh, that's okay. You know, we'll, we'll take it out of uh, some other social programs because right now Trump is just moving the money around in violation of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, whatever he, he wants to steal money from Congress, appropriations and move it around, he declares national emergency, and he does that. So uh, we'll move the money around and, you know, we'll, we'll provide the subsidies for American farmers, which is really agribusiness. And uh, in addition to that, uh, we'll, we'll claim uh, economic nationalism and we'll blame the Chinese for the slowing U.S. economy. And after the election, then we'll cut a deal. I think that's what's going on. Just wanting to look at some of the fundamentals here in terms of the way, like the U.S. economy, the Chinese economy, as I understand it, uh, China does a lot of uh, investment in in productive productive, uh, assets and goods and services and uh, industrial uh, infrastructure, whereas with the United States, it's more of a a financialized uh, growth and uh, it, and profits are being made that way, and and that's bound to have some consequences down the line. What? Uh, but at the same time, the United U.S. dollar is the dominant currency around the planet. At the, on the other hand, China has over a trillion dollars in U.S. Treasury bonds. 
which uh, you know could be a, a threat if sold. And you've got these escalating, uh, you know, th- these uh, tit for tat tariffs going up. Uh, so I, I, I guess I'm kind of curious to know your thoughts about it. If we could equate the situation to a kind of a global poker game, who would be holding the winning hand? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, as you said, uh, the U.S. has uh, the global currency. 85% of all trade is in dollars, and all of the uh, oil trade is in dollars. Uh, so that's that's the U.S.'s big imperial weapon, you see, big a- empire weapon, uh, control of the global currency. Uh, and, you know, it's got other financial weapons as well. The uh, central bank pretty much calls the shot and forces other central banks to follow suit. Uh, the banking system is dominated, global, is dominated by U.S. banks and shadow banks. Uh, Europe's banks and Japan's banks are, are a, uh, basket cases. Uh, so, uh, you know, the U.S. controls the banking, global banking system. It, it conclo- controls the money system. Uh, and financially, uh, it now is uh, on a rampage declaring national security and sanctions uh, and uh, using currency to to undermine uh, opponents in, in other countries that don't go along. I mean, the extreme case, of course, is Venezuela, where the U.S. has uh, controlled and uh, destroyed its currency pretty much. Uh, but, you know, it's a big weapon the U.S. has, a big advantage the U.S. has. Uh, the Chinese, however, are not without uh, weapons of their own in a trade war, which in my forthcoming uh, article is... Uh, uh, from trade war to economic war. You see, economic war is more than just tariffs. And uh, both sides are slipping. China and U.S. are slipping into an economic war here using other economic weapons. And I just described the U.S. with, you know, currency and so forth, weapons it has, uh, and the value of the dollar, of course, uh, uh, rising or falling. That That's a weapon. Uh, that has a direct response mostly to uh, Federal Reserve monetary policy. Uh, but China has some weapons, too. You know, uh, China is already slowing its purchases of uh, U.S. treasuries. It's slowing it. Uh, it's it's not selling off, uh, although uh, in March was the first month in um, years that it actually sold off $20 billion of treasuries. But it was slow, it, slowing down its purchase of treasuries. That, that That's a weapon. And uh, as that happens... Um, it causes the, uh, uh, the the Chinese currency, the yuan, to devalue, and right now it's it's at its threshold of seven yuan to the dollar. And if the Chinese allow it to devalue even more, well, that's going to set off a uh, a global currency war, I think, uh, and uh, then that uh, reverberates on the U.S. because uh, you got all U.S. multinational corporations doing business in Latin America and elsewhere. And when those currencies uh, collapse, as they are, for example, in Argentina, Brazil, and places, uh, U.S. businesses doing business there uh, lose profits uh, in big time when those those domestic currencies collapse. Uh, or if the U.S. dollar rises faster than those currencies. Uh, so uh, that's a way of punishing uh, U.S. multinational corporations indirectly uh, chi- if they allow their devaluation. Uh, China can also uh, uh, make moves to uh, provide uh, in- implement sanctions on U.S. companies, just like the U.S. is doing with Huawei and ZT and China Mobile. Well, you know, uh, they can do that with Apple and a few others. 
Uh, and uh, they may do that. That's a big weapon they got that they haven't played yet. Uh, another weapon is, uh, you know, buy Chinese uh, to, you know, mobilize uh, the Chinese populace to uh, boycott American companies over there. Some signs that they're making some preparations for that. Uh, President Xi talked about the, the economic long march that's ahead of them. I see that as a move mobilizing, eventually mobilizing uh, uh, the Chinese consumer. Uh, well, that will impact American corporations, too. Uh, they could uh, rescind the 51% ownership rule for American corporations and leave it for, for uh, you know, European and other corporations. Um, they could impose non-tariff barriers of various kinds with licensing and customs rules and so forth. Uh, there's a lot of things they can do. If they do them, we are, we are descending into an economic war between the U.S. Well, but I think that's exactly what the U.S. neocons want, you see. Hmm. They want that to happen. Uh, or, or total capitulation or economic war, I think, is what they want. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see where that goes. But let's watch uh, closely uh, because it may spin out of control. Uh, the, you know, the wild card here is you never know what Trump's going to do. You know, Trump may just sort of uh, uh, throw a, a Bolton under the bus, as he has everybody else, uh, and sign a deal here, uh, you know, as a way of saying, look at a great deal I did uh, before the election. Uh, it's a little early for him to do that. If he's going to do that, he's going to wait until just before the election because, uh, you know, we'll wait and see uh, what the terms and conditions are. And the idea is to say you've done it right before the election just as he did with NAFTA before the midterms, uh, before people can really see what the what the terms and, and conditions really are. So there's a possibility next year, if the economy weakens, uh, that uh, Trump may break ranks with the, the neocons and sign a deal to the great pleasure of the U.S. bankers and multinational corporations and Steve Mnuchin and all the others who really want a deal right now. Uh, but, the you know, behind the... Uh, uh, the neocons is the U.S. military-industrial complex, right, the Pentagon and others uh, who are seeing the technology uh, issue as uh, the key issue in the next decade in competition uh, economically and politically and militarily with the Chinese. And, of course, we know Trump is, uh, you know, he's very obsequious when it comes to uh, the U.S. military. Uh, he, you know, he kisses butt whenever he can. Uh, to make it look like he loves them, which he probably does. But in any event, uh, you know, it's it's a little hard to tell which way it's going to go. But it could go either way. We could have even a worse economic war here. Uh, or uh, Trump could uh, throw in the towel, take what he can, uh, claim it's a big deal uh, on the trade uh, deficit and a big deal on uh, U.S. ownership and uh, say he's gotten deal agreements on the tech transfer uh, even though China's holding very firm on that. Uh, and, you know, it knows this future has to do with uh, next generation technologies as well. There is uh, some resemblance, it seems to me, between uh, you know, the United States and China today and Great Britain and Germany uh, about 100 years ago, and that uh, situation where you had a, a rival power that was uh, you know, coming too close to uh, where Britain was resulted in a war. 
uh, not just an economic war, but a, an actual war. And I was wondering if you wanted to, <laughs> your thoughts about that, making that comparison, and if we could see this economic war turning into something nastier. Well, what you left out of that uh, analogy uh, is the United States, you see. Uh, Britain and Germany uh, truly had a big big competition before World War One, and World War One was about that. Uh, and then World War II was just a continuation of World War I uh, over that as well. But uh, who benefited from, from the Britain-Germany conflict? The United States, right? The United States comes out of World War I as the uh, co-equal to, uh, to the British Empire. Uh, and uh, the currencies are really co-equal currencies. And throughout the 1920s, uh, as the gold standard collapse, collapses, the United States grows stronger and uh, Britain grows weaker. Uh, so the U.S. Uh, really benefited, and typically the U.S. Uh, uh, waits uh, for for other combatants to beat each other up, and then it steps in and, and, and sweeps the deck of the benefits, which it did in World War One, and it did in World War Two as well. You know, what was left of the British Empire had to be signed off to the United States, and the U.S. becomes a hegemon there globally after uh, World War Two, and uh, the Europeans uh, beat themselves into submission and become second-rate global powers uh, ever since. Well, you know, uh, who's sitting in the wings here between the U.S. and China? I don't see anybody. Uh, So it's a little bit different in that comparison, I think. Well, I think we'll leave it there, but I want to thank you very much for uh, sharing your insights with us, Dr. Rasmus. My pleasure. Anytime. We've been speaking with journalist, author, and commentator Dr. Jack Rasmus. He blogs at jackrasmus.com and hosts Alternative Visions on the Progressive Radio Network. You can catch many of his articles as well at Global Research. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. As the trade war with China escalates, we cannot underestimate the significant economic instruments the U.S. wields in order to maintain their dominant position on the world financial stage. Leo Panitch addresses this subject in a book he co-wrote with Sam Gindon called The Making of Global Capitalism, The Political Economy of American Empire. Professor Leo Victor Panitch is a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada, a distinguished research professor and Canada Research Chair in Comparative Political Economy at York University and editor of Socialist Register. As part of a conversation with the Global Research News Hour from earlier in May, Professor Panitch speaks to how America manages to sustain its fundamental grip on the world economy and how mass movements could potentially channel their energies to loosen the grip of the 1%. Here, Professor Panitch addresses the point raised in the last segment about the allure of Trump's economic nationalism to a disenfranchised American public. So, so why is it that that, that populist right has been able to, to capitalize on it better than the, uh, the left, who I believe have... Well, there's no mystery to it. Uh, it. And the same occurred, of course, with Brexit in the UK, uh, uh, where... Uh, working-class constituencies which had voted Labour through the whole of the 20th century were voting in very great numbers for for uh, uh, UKIP, uh, for Nigel Farage's party, uh, which was, uh, you know, blaming 
uh, immigrants for the plight of deindustrialized areas of, of Britain. Um, in Welsh mining towns where the miners had been defeated in, 1880, in 1985, uh, to uh, right-wing appeals of this kind. That reflected, uh, and you saw it in the States, where uh, working-class communities in Ohio and Pennsylvania, in Michigan and so on, which had voted unfailingly Democrat from the 1930s on, from the time when the New Deal was introduced under FDR, under Roosevelt, unfailingly switched to Trump. Uh, and, and they had voted for Obama. This wasn't something that you could easily define as an inherent racism, right? Uh, and you're right. I think the, what was going on uh, was that finally the decades of uh, the Democratic Party having promised but never come through uh, uh, finally boiled over. Uh, you know, Clinton had run against uh, NAFTA. But the first thing he did was introduce it. Every Democratic president, including Obama, had promised that they would introduce labor legislation which would turn around the defeat of trade unionism in the United States in the early 1980s under Reagan. You know, when the air traffic controllers were uh, taken away in chains uh, during the air traffic controller, controller strike of the early 1980s. And that was just one instance of the massive defeat of trade unionism. And th that legislation was never followed through, mm -hmm. right? Insofar as Hillary Clinton reminded people of this, was it their sexism that led, her to, led them to vote against her and for Trump? In, marginally. It also reflected the demise of the Democratic Party's base in those areas already. Uh, Mike Davis, uh, uh, who's a remarkable American uh, Marxist historian, uh, did a, a terrific uh, little piece of research in which he looked during the campaign months of the summer of 2016 at local newspapers in those various areas of the Rust Belt, and he saw that plants were being closed in June, July, August in these towns in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, etc. Well, nobody heard about them. They were small plants uh, nationally. But you can bet that the local radio stations in every one of those towns talked about nothing else. It used to be the case that the Democratic Party officialdom the bosses of the Democratic Party were powerful enough in those towns to get those capitalists to postpone the closure of those of that type of plant until after the November election. They were no longer even able to do that. So, of course, it was the case that Trump could make the kind of running he did in such a situation, and that turned the election. Now, that said, one shouldn't, you know... Uh, overblow what a Hillary Clinton victory would have meant. And I, people think people were quite right to smell 
that, you know, the difference wasn't going to be very great for them. Not that Trump has been able to deliver for them or would, of course, uh, but they were able to smell that neither would a Clinton Democrat. Mm-hmm. And a, a crit- I, it seems as if a, a critical distinction, uh, you know, I, you know <laughs> even though there, there's some significant uh, alignments with the, the capitalist class in both cases, one was capitalizing on a, a, a kind of nationalist uh, sentiment, and uh, the other seemed to be fully engrossed in this uh, internationalist, uh, uh, what's called globalist uh, uh, mentality. And yeah, that, that takes us back to the era of, of, of the general strike, uh, that uh, during World War I, the promise of a international uh, working class, workers of all countries unite, which is uh, the words that stand over the Ukrainian labor temple uh, doorway, uh, where this conference had its conference mm-hmm. dinner on Thursday night. Uh, that promise that the socialist parties had made in the run-up to World War I was broken by the appeal that the nation states were able to make. We will make you workers individual citizens, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And you will become part of the imperial nation. Well, we are seeing that return, that, and many of the workers and even many of the socialist parties came behind that until the disappointment of the war led to the workers' revolt afterwards. That has been a, a constant tension, a class internationalism mm-hmm. or a nation-oriented uh, individual state nationalism, often inflected with imperial and colonial elements. In the American case, it's an informal empire. Uh, It's not an empire that's based on the conquest of territory anymore. It's been an informal empire based on the spread of capital. Yes. Uh, But uh, it still has, as we know, obviously, a clear imperial ideological appeal. Make America great again. Can you imagine a Canadian politician getting elected on Make Canada Great Again? (laughs) Well, that's what Thatcher and Reagan got elected on because they reflect that continuation of an imperial political culture. Uh, those it, of it us, resonates. It, it resonates and yeah. it has that appeal to people. You know, people aren't born with uh, a sense of belong- an identity uh, belonging to the class. That is, those identities are constructed socially over time. Well, I think and, like sports is a, is a good uh, part component of that because, I mean, you may not know anybody on the team and they probably wouldn't uh, look in your direction if you ever met them in public, but, you know, they, they're our team, you know, yeah. our sports team. Yeah. And so we got to cheer them on. Although so that sometimes becomes a class identity too. Uh-huh. Uh, and even a progressive one, you know, there's a team in Germany that's very popular precisely because it is the team that welcomes refugees. Mm. Uh, and, and that's also been true, of course, in, in Britain, in working class culture, identifying with particular Liverpool teams or, you know, the case of this. So it can go both ways, yeah. but you're right that often... Uh, sports identity goes with a, a extreme form of, of uh, nationalism, especially when there's international competition involved. 
Could you talk about this uh, the, the, this uh, sort of pseudo imperialism of, of the United States? Because I know that's been a focus of a lot of your writing. Yeah. That uh, you know, at least as far as going back to to World War II, the United States. Uh, continues to drive global capitalism. And uh, even though it's been, you know, for, for the last few decades, it seems like the United States has been in an in, in end stage. It's, it's collapsing, unsustainable deficits. And, and yet yeah. they're calling the shots even now. Yeah. So what, what's, well, I, I, this goes back to, uh, like, I guess, the Marshall Plan and, and Bretton Woods. Yeah, uh, I, I spent some... 15 years working on uh, a book that I'm very proud of uh, called The Making of Global Capitalism, The Political Economy of American Empire, which, as you said, I co-authored with Sam Gindlin. And, and uh, you know, learned more doing that than I had in the whole of my life. Uh, uh, a lot of people thought that globalization, the spread of capitalism, was about capital bypassing states. Uh, and and nothing could have been truer from the truth. Uh, states made global capitalism, and then there are states and states, and some states made it more than others. It was primarily made under the aegis of the American state. And globalization is something that is not something that just emerges in the 1980s. It goes back, it's rooted in uh, America's dominance as a state, coming out of World War II. Uh, and and uh, uh, the American state has uh, overseen other states uh, opening up to the movement of capital and to treating international capital, multinational corporations, the same as their domestic corporations, and providing them with the guarantees that property needs if it is to uh, be able to exploit labor uh, and to uh, compete. Uh, you know, this, this developed gradually through the post-war years, uh, but this was a new type of empire, which we Canadians know better than anyone. We moved from being a formal colony of Britain through the course of the 20th century to becoming an informal colony of the United States as American capital penetrated Canada. And, you know, General Motors is as much a good corporate citizen in Canada as is any Canadian capitalist. And the American banks are more anxious to sell to for and lend, rather, to foreign corporations as domestic ones. Uh, when it you know, GM worker from Windsor makes a demand on the Canadian state. He makes it as a GM worker, which means he's making it in the context of an internationalized multinational corporation. So in by the 1960s, as massive foreign direct investment was finally pouring into Europe, and, and uh, 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 the United States had created the conditions through the Marshall Plan, as you say, for uh, European states being open to transnational capital uh, and had created the conditions for working classes being coming well enough off that they could begin to consume inside Europe all of the uh, products of subsidiaries that would produce in Europe, uh, American subsidiaries. They, Europeans began to speak of the Canadianization of Europe. 
(laughs) (laughs) And in a certain sense, that's what's happened. Uh Uh, You know, even China, uh, the the most successful uh, late developing capitalist state in history, of course, ironically run by a rather venal communist party elite, but it's a capitalist development. It has been the late developer with the most foreign direct investment. Uh, and, and foreign corporations, American being the leading ones, but not only, have been involved in that development. The value chains that link China uh, into Western markets are value chains that are, of course, Chinese, but they're closely integrated with the international investment banks and the multinational corporations. And and people who therefore see the current world in terms of a resurgence of inter-imperial rivalries between states don't tend to see, I think, the degree to which these international production chains are integrated. That's an interesting That's not point. to say there aren't tensions. Uh-huh. But, you know, insofar as America has a trade deficit, of course, trade, Trump plays on this, this marries, matters very, very little. So long as the world's capitalists want to uh, uh, be holding their capital in dollars and the world's states need to have enormous dollar reserves. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, therefore, the trade deficit is entirely more than compensated for by the flow of capital into the United States, by the holding of dollars around the world, by the fact that most transactions in the world take place uh, through the aegis of the American dollar. Uh, so what do you think about uh, the uh, the argument that uh, when you see countries like Iraq switching away from the U.S. to the euro or the uh, it doesn't uh, wa- mean a thing. or, or Gadi- Gaddafi a, as being a motivator behind these wars. Well, it, 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 not to say that it isn't a motivator, but it's an illusion. Because you're trying to people move to often, a different currency. Yeah, people are often undermined. motivated by illusions. Uh, okay. History, unfortunately, has been driven by illusions. You know, uh, you, you sell your oil in the euro and it can it is converted in a fraction of a second into dollars. Insofar as you have open capital and currency markets with no capital controls, what's the difference whether you buy it in dollars, in euros or not? Hmm. And this was an enormous illusion of the left, and to some extent, uh, even of practitioners in the United States who thought this would matter. Uh, of course it didn't matter. Uh, and and uh, it, this is not what drives in a fundamental way, uh, the uh, differences between states. And what do you make of uh, the the BRICS uh, alliance and the uh, the this? Uh, one Belt, One Road initiative, which he was presented as, as presenting an, an alternative to this hegemonic uh, penetration well, by I the Well, I think US. by now one seen the, the emptiness of the BRICS rhetoric, oh. uh, uh, obviously. Uh, there uh, is very little cohesive, never was anything cohesive. It, you know, was largely 
uh, even quant- before Bolsonaro. Uh, oh, long yeah. before, of course. A uh, very good book has been written on this by Patrick Bond and mm. Anna Garcia from Brazil, Patrick Bond from South Africa, uh, showing the emptiness of the BRICS. What it does, what BRICS does do, is it helps to open up those states uh, all the more to global capitalism. Um, and and you know, again, let's talk talk about the, the Chinese threat. Uh, people tend to see this as uh, China conquering Asia, taking that away from the American empire, etc. The, the degree of tensions inside Asia, uh, the fear on the part of most Asian states of Chinese imperialism is, for good or ill, much greater than their fear of American imperialism. Uh, India, Japan look to the United States as a protector. Uh, Vietnam as a protector against what they've often seen as the ancient Chinese empire. So the notion that China in a uh, uh, unidimensional way represents an Asian challenge, let alone a BRICS challenge, Hmm. to the American empire is otherworldly. Now, I'm not in any sense suggesting that the rise of Chinese capitalism is not one of the great historical developments. It is. No question. And I'm not denying that it's attached, sometimes unfortunately, as was the case with Western empires, with a high degree of Chinese nationalism. Nor am I in any sense predicting that who knows, given what will happen in the 21st century, uh, uh, especially with the rise of the xenophobic right everywhere, uh, that th- those imperial nationalisms may not undo global capitalism. And, and China's economic strength may indeed lead to a breakdown of globalization, but uh, the implications of that for China today uh, would be devastating economically. Uh, they are very much tied into the need to produce for Western markets. And that reflects, of course, the weakness of the Chinese working class mm-hmm. uh, in that, you know, that you can't possibly substitute what China is sending, uh, selling to the West uh, it's to sell to an internal Chinese market. Uh, and and uh, uh, that's one of the problematic uh, uh, questions for the Chinese ruling class. For the left for the Chinese working class. The great question in the sense of the 21st century is whether the strikes you see in China today, the disruptions in production, there are some 200,000 what the Chinese call disruptions but are effectively strikes in China, whether those are the types of strikes which will lead Chinese workers to want to secure individual commodities become consumers of the individual commodity as the Western working class did uh, through the course of the 20th century or whether they will opt for uh, meeting their needs through collective goods, through decommodified public goods. Uh, What has happened to the Western working class out of the militancy of 1919 through the 20th century was that people became consumers of individual capitalist products. They became commodified. Mm. Uh, Their ability to hold on to that status is now increasingly in question. And people see the need for decommodified common public goods, transit, education, access to communications, 
media. Right? And that takes me to, uh, you know, going back to the Western working class, the United States in particular, because, yes, there is this, uh, uh, this populist right, but there's also a populist left, Absolutely. and they are expressing themselves Absolutely. through mass demonstrations and organizing at the, uh, the electoral level, the political level. Right. And so we see these movements behind Bernie Sanders, right. for example. So I, I was wondering if you could... Um, uh, talk about you know discuss you know, the efficacy of the the efficacy of those well, sorts it's, it's of movements. It's a remarkable development. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think uh, the resurgence of the word socialism uh, in the second decade of the twenty first century is is uh, one of the great uh, historic developments, uh, and properly so. Uh, obviously, a dynamic and powerful system like capitalism was not going to be easily overthrown or overthrown quickly. This was one of the great mistakes of the Marxists, including Marx. Mm -hmm. You know, remembering the French Revolution, they thought, oh, well, you know, uh, there'll be other revolutions in our lifetime. And it's understandable. Given our own individual mortality, we want to see a new and different world in our own lifetime. Well, this was such a new and powerful and dynamic system, as Marx himself wrote it was. You know, the greatest in history. Uh, it wasn't going to be easily overthrown. Uh, so the first socialist attempts to overthrow it, it wasn't surprising that people didn't know how to do that. Uh, what we're seeing as capitalism has continued and continued to show its irrational, chaotic, inegalitarian nature is a resurgence of the desire to get beyond it, to democratize not just the state, uh, uh, in the minimal way we have with periodic elections, but to democratize the economy and to democratize the public sphere. Mm -hmm. uh, take it away from the bureaucratic nature of the capitalist state. And, and we see a resurgence of that. And what's even more exciting is that those people who quite rightly turn to protest the anti-globalization movements, Occupy, etc., who had an anarchist orientation, quite understandably because of what had happened to the working class political parties in the 20th century, how they'd been co-opted, bureaucratized, etc. After Occupy, people discovered that you can protest until hell freezes over and you will not change the world. Mm -hmm. Unless you can get into the state and transform the state, which, of course, capitalism can't exist without a state. It's, so you even, even if you take your protest to the level of a general strike? Even if you take it to... And really? The problem with a general strike, of course, is how do you resolve it unless you actually get into the state? It can never resolve itself. That's just the negativity. Uh, and, and Some people would argue, though, like with Bernie Sanders, uh, I mean, they, I, I've heard the term sheepdog utilize that uh, they basically there these these aspects these mentalities are in existence but uh, he's there to to capture that energy but in the end you're going to end up that's with another thing. you know but joe biden or no, Hillary that's Clinton. a great danger i don't think he's a joe biden i mean the same occur you know well, i'm not saying he's same, a joe biden but he's he, you know he's not and en but, energies that could be directed elsewhere rather than somebody who's not realistically going to. It's not a matter of directing them elsewhere. It's a matter of unifying them in a way that prevents this co-optation. Uh, of course, it is very much the case that it, 
it, it'll be extremely difficult. It always has been difficult for an elected socialist to get into the state and make those changes. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is, I think, somewhat romantic on the part of Bernie's part to say, if I get into the White House, into what will be a very inhospitable state, what I'll count on is mass movements mobilizing in the streets. What you need to be able to do, and this is very, very difficult, is to combine uh, the culture of protest with a form of political institution building so that you aren't just protesting, but you are in every community creating organizations, institutions, which develop people's capacities to actually govern their own lives collectively. It's, the, it's not that hard to walk out in the street. It is much harder or to press a button on a computer screen. It is much harder to be able to deliver milk to families as the general strikers did. Uh, that came out of aid societies, uh, uh, socialist organizations, unions that had developed people's capacities, their institutional capacities uh, to run their own lives. We've lost that rather than gained it over the course of the last century. So when a Sanders or a Corbyn emerges, in a sense it's premature. We need to go back to the type of political institution building uh, that went on from 1880 to 1920 that is not only bringing in members and getting their dues and getting their votes, but is creating the type of institutions in every community where people are learning how the system works, learning how to change the system, learning the capacities to run a meeting, <laughs> learning how to make delegates, people they elect, accountable to them, becoming articulate with regard to political questions, etc. I often used to say that my father, with a great six education, knew more about how to run a political meeting, knew more about Robert's rules of order, knew more about how to make his elected official accountable than my uh, fourth-year students in political science. <laughs> and he did, and he learned that in the institutions that produced the Winnipeg General Strike. He learned it as a trade unionist. He learned it as a member of the Winnipeg Aid Society, which was a Jewish organization to which he paid pennies a month to ensure he wouldn't lie in a pauper's grave when he died, hmm. uh, to give him some basic insurance before the era of the welfare state. And workers learned there uh, things that they some, somehow, that they to some extent lost when the welfare state took all that over for them, Right. Uh, we need to build the institutions capable of allowing the class to rule itself. That can't take place without changing the state. Uh, but that's, that's the task. So mm -hmm. electing Bernie is necessary, or Corbyn, but it, it, it will not yield what we need if we aren't doing what we need to do in every locality to build institutions. That was Leo Panich. York University professor and editor of the Socialist Register. 
speaking to the Global Research News Hour on May 11th. Professor Panich will be speaking as part of the launch panel of Socialist Register's latest volume at the Left Forum 2019 event on June 29th at Long Island University, Brooklyn, in New York City. For details, please visit leftforum.org. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.